Good morning. My name is Sharon Schantz, and I've been attending Bethany Community Church since 1975 when uh, Pastor Larry and I came as newlyweds. It was a great place to come because I had just graduated from Western in, uh, with a music, Bachelor of Music Education, and I needed a teacher's college, and there was one here. And Larry was looking at two to three years pastoral experience so he, that he could uh, apply for, um, to be a Bible college professor. Well, his two to three years ended up being 43 years, and uh, we're still here. I, did, uh, I never taught in the school system, but I've been using my teaching gifts uh, as a private piano instructor and uh, leading and teaching Bible studies. So we're still here and uh, still serving here at Bethany. Well, God grew Bethany Community Church physically, numerically, and spiritually through many interesting times and seasons. And God also grew our family, five beautiful daughters, five wonderful sons-in-law, and 12 absolutely amazing grandchildren. We feel very blessed. The Word of God has always and continues to be extremely important to the life and ministry here at Bethany. It's the Bible that contains the words that give us life, the words that give us hope and strength and our identity. But most importantly, the words of the Bible tell us who God is. Before I get into the passage in Philippians chapter 4 today, I'd like to uh, share with you some thoughts that I've been reading about in Jen Wilkins' book, The Women of the Word, that has been challenging my thinking about the approach to God's Word in the last few years. Uh, men don't zone out. It's equally applicable to men of the Word. And she says, I believe there is nothing more transformative to our lives than beholding God in his word. After all, how can we conform to the image of a God we have not beheld? And just to emphasize, where do we behold God? You might say in creation, which is true, but most importantly, and, and most, most of our information about who God is comes through the Bible. We often approach the scriptures looking at questions like, who am I and what should I do? And don't get me wrong, answering these questions by looking at God's word is extremely important. And I, I have been transformed by answering those questions as I've looked at God's word. But they can lead us to a very subtle misunderstanding that the Bible is only a book about me. My insecurities, my fears and doubts can't be banished by a greater knowledge of who I am. They can only be banished by a greater knowledge of the great I am. And this is how God talks about himself in Exodus to Moses, as Moses is asking some questions at the burning bush. He says, who am I and what am I supposed to do? And God says, I am. My approach to the uniquely inspired word of God has changed. Now, as I look at passages and ask, what does this passage say about God? And then, how does this truth change how I live. Another point Jen Wilkins make is something else that we might have a bit backwards, and it's very subtle. We often think of our hearts transforming our minds. Again, don't get me wrong. In Mark 12, verse 30, Jesus says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. To love God with all our hearts means that we love him completely with our emotions and our, and our wills. Attaching our emotions to our faith comes quite naturally, especially for women, 
generally speaking, and we, we know how to be emotive without too much guidance. So if we think of the heart as the seat of our emotions and will, it makes sense that we so often approach God's words by saying, who am I and what should I do? These two questions uniquely address the heart. And Christianity is a religion of the heart, of how Christ comes into our hearts, of how Christ changes our hearts, how God gives us new hearts. It's a right way to speak of our faith, but not exclusively. And here's the rest of uh, what Jesus says in Mark 12. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your mind and with all your strength. Our minds are the seat of our intellects. Attaching our intellect to our faith does not come as naturally to most of us. We live in a time, too, when often faith and reason are spoken of as polar opposites. Wilkin goes on to say, We gauge the strength of our faith by how close we feel to God at any given moment, by how a sermon made us feel, a worship song made us feel, or by how our quiet time made us feel. Hidden in this thinking is an honest desire to share the deep relationship with the personal God. But sustaining our emotions can be exhausting and defeating. Changing circumstances can topple our emotional stability in an instant. Could this be because we've gotten things backwards? By asking our hearts to lead our minds, have we willingly purchased a ticket to a roller coaster ride? Unless we turn things around, Placing the mind in charge of the heart, we could be in for a long, wild ride. Here are some scriptures that talk about the role of the mind in our approach to God. In Chronicles, David says, Now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Isaiah, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all those whose thoughts are fixed on you. Paul in Corinthians, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Luke 24, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, speaking to two people on the road, and he tells them all about the scriptures from the beginning. And then it says, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. In Romans, Paul again, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. We cannot rush past the pivotal truth here that the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. The heart cannot change what the mind doesn't know. And it's not that the mind alone affects our transformation, but the path to transformation runs from the mind to the heart and not the other way around. So, finding greater pleasure in God and love for Him will not result from pursuing more experiences of Him, but from getting to know Him better in His Word. I found this uh, same idea in a book by Michael Bird, just newly published this year, called Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible, where he says, The goal of our instruction in the Scriptures is to know God better so that we may grow in our love for God. I remember a few years back, um, I was thinking about my faith, how I could have more faith or stronger faith, and I discovered that faith was something I just couldn't muster up. It's too frustrating 
The answer for me was not a bigger faith, but a bigger God. And it wasn't that God got bigger, but my knowledge of who he was grew bigger. Knowing about his nature, his work among his people. And I did a study of the names of God in the Bible. Trusting in the God that I was learning about helped me get through some tough years as our family experienced the deaths of four close family members and a close friend in the 1980s and early 1990s. I will tell you honestly, these truths did not sink in right away and it was a long, slow process as I got back to mental, emotional and spiritual health. But the change in my thinking helped immensely to bring some strength and stability to my faith. Well, if not for basing my faith on what I know about God, as opposed to how I feel, my faith definitely would have crashed and burned with the ev events of this past year. As if all the uncertainty and stress of COVID wasn't enough. In uh, January, my 95-year-old mother passed away unexpectedly and very suddenly from COVID. Sometimes I wonder just how I'm dealing with the loss. My heart could be, my heart should be in despair as a, the reality sinks in. And I have had my moments. But then I remember. I remember God. I remember his plan, his comfort the strength he offers, his promise of eternal life for all those who believe in Jesus' name, and what is written about me not having to mourn as those who have no hope. When I ponder and meditate on these things, I can have strength, and I can be, th be thankful. Then on May 21st, as a result of a bicycling accident, I broke my collarbone and sustained two pelvic fractures. And I wonder, how am I getting through this? <laughs> my, my summer is ruined, as someone aptly put it. Someone else said, this will be a summer to remember. And I like that much better. I could be in despair, and I do have my moments, but I am counting on God to get us through. <laughs> Everything I do takes twice as long and initially, I really had to rely on Larry for everything. And I know he said this, but in case you're wondering, yes, Larry has done a really wonderful job at being my helper, my nurse, my cook, not a bad cleaner, and a chauffeur, and my pool boy, whom I've been calling Lorenzo. Getting him trained was a bit of a different story, though. And we have had a few heated discussions about how to do things. Actually, it's like my way or Larry's way, which is also known as the right way and the wrong way. Well, it's been a difficult transition for me. I'm a bit of the neat freak, and it's hard to look at weeds in the lawn, dust bunnies in the house. And I am more of a control person, so it, it was, it's been hard. It's nice, though, getting a little bit better, getting some of that control back, being able to do some things for myself. It also has been nice to know Larry can actually do the laundry and hang it up and he can do a good job of vacuuming as well. I have been absolutely amazed at how God has been there for us these past four months, a few months, and uh, in my rehabilitating and, and experiencing a new normal. What I know and believe about my God is getting us through. And what God has provided through the answered prayers and the support 
in physical ways of our wonderful family, our church family, specifically my Bible study group and our uh, church, our um, life group. It's nothing short of a miracle what God has done. This accident had the potential to be very detrimental to my physical, mental, emotional, spiritual health. And I remember the day the weight of that hit me. I asked for prayers, for patience, for strength, for safety, for healing. And God has been answering those prayers. He's been also ministering to me in ways that I certainly would have missed apart from this happening. Anyway, this has been a little bit of a lengthy intro to the passage we're looking at today. But hopefully you will see how informing our minds about the God and the Christ of the scriptures will help us to become like Jesus and to have a stronger faith. And becoming like Jesus is truly the goal of our study. Transformation by beholding God and Jesus Christ in the word. So Philippians 4 verses 1 to 9. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Now I appeal to Eudia and Sincti, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. So back to verse 1. It starts with, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. A uh, better translation is stand firm in the Lord, uh, which is in the NIV and New American Standard. This, therefore, connects it to the end of chapter 3. And Paul is saying, okay, from what I just said to you in the letter, and, and you'll have to reference Jamie's message from last week, <laughs> this is how you stand firm in the Lord, or how you stay true. Notice, it is stand firm in the Lord. This means in his strength, following Christ's teachings, respecting his word, modeling his priorities, loving his people, carrying out his will. It means knowing Jesus and all that he stands for and then standing firm in that as you stay true to him. The next part of verse uh, 1 is, I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. We have seen all through this letter how much Paul loves these people. He expresses his yearning to see them and his great joy when he thinks about them and how they're growing in the faith. 
Nothing pleases Paul more than being able to see how the gospel he preached to them is working its way out in their lives and bearing fruit. And because of his great love for them, there's something he needs to bring up, and it's in verse 2. He appeals to Judea and Sancti, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, and we're not quite sure who that person is, but to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the Book of Life. So, these two women are believers. Their names are both written in the Book of Life. Both of them worked extremely hard at sharing the gospel with all of the people in Philippi. What Paul doesn't say, though, are the details of their argument or disagreement. He doesn't try to take charge. He doesn't spell out a plan for reconciliation. He doesn't rebuke them. He isn't asking them even, he doesn't say to hold the same opinion or agree on every last thing. But what he does say is he urges them, both of them, strongly to think about Jesus, to whom they both belong. He's calling them to find harmony in their common Lord and Savior. Paul already told them some of these same ideas in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Totally the attitude of Jesus. And because of how Paul handles this, it suggests it wasn't a doctrinal issue, but maybe just a clash of personalities, a difference of opinion. And of course, uh, maybe some selfishness and pride, wanting our own way, their own way, got into the mix of all that. But Jesus came to show us a better way. By his example, he gave his life on the cross. Without adopting Jesus' attitude, there can be little hope for harmony and reconciliation. And if you are called on to be that true partner to help in a situation, remember, and these are some of Chuck Swindoll, Um, he's a pastor, retired pastor, I believe, uh, written lots of books. These are his thoughts. The ultimate goal is restoration, not discipline. The right attitude is grace, not force. The common ground is Christ, not logic, not church policy, not tradition, not your will. Some things to think about. Well, in these next two verses, we see another recurring theme from this letter. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again. Rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Paul mentions joy and rejoicing twice in this short little verse, as if it's something important, and it is. He's calling them again to rejoice. But sometimes it's hard to rejoice when someone you love dies, or when you have a debilitating bicycle accident, or like Paul, you end up in jail because of your faith and you're being persecuted. And there's the threat of imminent death. Paul tells his readers to rejoice, no matter what the circumstances. But notice again, it's in the Lord. So mustering up joy without Jesus is pretty much nigh impossible. We must choose joy by remembering Jesus 
and his goodness and grace. It's by remembering all those things that we know about God through his word and then letting those thoughts guide our hearts to feel that joy because we know a lot of things. He won't leave us. He won't forsake us. He loves us. He will give us power and he will fill us with that joy. We also need to get rid of head to navel disease. Head to navel disease. It's when you're looking inside. We need to look out and we need to look up to find real joy. The, the out thing that's helping me right now to get through some days is watching videos of my uh, two youngest grandchildren laughing. It's just something to behold and it makes, uh, gives me a special kind of joy and brings a smile to my face every time. Good medicine, like the Proverbs say. Now, the last part of that verse, Paul brings up this aspect again. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. The, the Greek word for considerate is a PA case. And it, it is a hard word to translate. It's usually, it's translated cons be considerate or be um, gentle. But it also has an aspect of yielding one's personal rights in the meaning of it. That's the clincher, giving up our rights. And Paul says, we're to let everyone see this consideration, not just those that we choose to. Paul is hitting this aspect of relationships a lot in this letter. He's saying, be gentle, allow God to work in his way and in his timing. Of course, truth is not to be sacrificed, but a gentle spirit, a considerate heart, giving up our rights will do much to disarm the adversary because remember, Jesus is coming soon. He is near. We don't have time to waste being at odds. Our next verses contain some of the most beautiful, wonderful, and miraculous truths found in the scriptures. Beautiful but challenging. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Some commands here and some beautiful promises. The first command, don't worry about anything. Now, we, we have to park here just a moment. Does Paul really mean anything? It reminds me of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, where in Matthew 6, uh, Jesus says five times not to worry. And the last thing he says not to worry about is tomorrow. Well, with COVID, my physical situation, it's like, okay, it's easy for you to say, Jesus, not to worry about tomorrow, but I think I'm a little worried about tomorrow. But then I thought, if Jesus can say, don't worry about tomorrow, Jesus is God. He knows everything about tomorrow. If I can trust what I know about Jesus and I can trust his words not to worry, then I don't need to worry about tomorrow because God's got it. Remember, the Bible is about God, not about me. And you know, it's in, uh, crucial, the next command, it's prayer to God about everything. It says pray about everything. That word in the Greek for pray is prosuch, and it means prayer specifically to God. Now you might think, okay, well that's obvious, of course I'm praying to God. We pray to God. But sometimes we respond not to the real God, but to what we wish God and life to be like. 
And as Timothy Keller says in his book on prayer, without prayer that answers the God of the Bible, we will only be talking to ourselves. The third command, tell God what you need, specifically says, tell God what you need. And that need is our expression of uh, our requests. And, and it indicates a bit of pleading. And it, it is to God. Tell him. And it's to the God that the Bible portrays, the sovereign one that knows everything, the only one that has the power to truly minister to my deep needs and answer everything. When I know this God with my mind, what a difference it makes in the confidence I have within my spirit that he actually hears me. He cares for me and will do what he thinks best. Maybe not what I think best, but what he thinks best. These verses are a constant reminder to me to stop worrying. I said it's a constant reminder for me to stop worrying. <laughs> I have not quite stopped worrying yet, but you know what? The things I worry about, they're things I can't change. They're things I don't have control over. Things that agitate me, frighten me, and burden me. I don't need them, and I need to always bring them again to God. And when I do place these things into God's capable hands, my heart can feel and does feel an unbelievable rest, and he works things out. That fourth part is to thank God, to thank him as part of your prayer. This piece is, is huge. I like what Sarah Young in her book, Jesus Calling, says about thankfulness as she writes as if Jesus were speaking to us. When you bring your, me your prayer requests, lay out your concerns before me. Speak to me candidly. Pour out your heart. Then thank me for the answers that I have set in motion long before you can discern results. When you thank me for how I am answering your prayers, your mindset becomes much more positive. Thankful prayers keep your focus on my presence and my promises. Thankfulness does that. And if you're having trouble with thankfulness, maybe you need to get that list started about what God has been doing in your life, as uh, Pastor Andrew talked about and challenged us with on July 4th message. Or start a journal where you write down all you're learning about God and what you're reading. And then read through those passages about God and Christ and, and who he is, and they will help you. Focus on his presence and his promises so your trust and faith can be strengthened. So if we pray to God instead of worry, and we trust, not forgetting to be thankful that God is at work, the result is something so amazing that we can't begin to comprehend it with our minds. We'll experience and feel God's peace. It's the peace that only God can give to us. Paul describes that peace as a guard around our heart and our mind. Guard is a military terms, term for soldiers that would march around something valuable or strategic. I love that God sees our hearts as valuable and strategic. As the writer to Proverbs reminds us, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. When we transfer our troubles to the Lord through prayer, we are given a silent sentry or guard called God's peace to protect our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. This is true peace. It's not found in the absence of conflict. We can't muster up peace 
and it comes from God and is a result of knowing and trusting. He is in control, heart and mind. I found my thoughts about the relationship of prayer and um, knowing God confirmed in Timothy Keller's book on prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. Here are a few of his thoughts. Prayer is continuing a conversation that God has started through his word and his grace, which eventually becomes a full encounter with him. And the power of our prayers then lies not primarily in our effort and striving or in any technique, but rather in our knowledge of God. I love this. I I believe it. And I have lived this, trusting in that knowledge of God and the the power that gives me in my prayer. And how do I learn this language of prayer? Timothy Keller quotes Eugene Peterson. Language is spoken into us. We learn language only as we are spoken to. We are plunged at birth into a sea of language. Then slowly, syllable by syllable, we acquire the capacity to answer. Mama, Papa, Bottle, Blanket, Yes, No. All speech is an answering speech. We were all spoken to before we spoke. So true. I remember when our oldest daughter was about a year and a half, she said, oh dear. And I thought, oh, that's so cute. How did she come up with that? And as soon as she had said it, I think within the next half hour, I must have said, oh dear, like five times. And then I realized, ah, okay, I've been saying it all along. That's why she said it. So if you're struggling in your prayer life, maybe plunge yourself into the sea of language that is God's word. Look at the prayers of the writers and the figures in the Bible. Read their prayers. Think and reflect and ponder on their prayers. Pray their prayers, putting your name in. And as Peterson, Eugene Peterson observes, they were prayed by people who understood that God, not their feelings, was the center. Human experiences might provoke the prayers, and they do, but they do not condition them. And as Keller adds, this wedding of the Bible and prayer anchors your life down in the real and complex God. And when I wonder, how am I getting through these days? I see I am anchored in the word and in prayer, and it's making all the difference. Now, Paul gives some final thoughts. And of course, he just loads these sentences. (laughs) They're loaded thoughts. Notice how he emphasizes the mind. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. No matter what you're dealing with or how bad things get or you wonder why is God allowing this, Paul says, fix your thoughts, think about and keep your mind deliberately focused on true praiseworthy things. Refuse to ruminate and think about negative junk foods like shame and fear, guilt, or the lies of the devil. These will only strengthen worry and strangle peace. 
Now, Paul then encourages his readers to follow his example in all they heard from him and all that they saw. And you might think that's a little odd, follow my example. But Paul can say this because he was living like Jesus. And he's calling them to live like Jesus. And he's calling us to live like Jesus too. I love that additional promise Paul adds at the end there. If they do keep on doing these things, God will be with them. The God of, that is present with me is called the God of peace. And this is how I can have perfect rest. So what would be my challenge today? Read God's word, a portion of his word. Reflect on it. Observe. What do I see about God? What do I see about Jesus Christ in this passage? And write it down. Then think about what you've written down and apply it. So what does this truth mean? And then how will it change how I live? And then pray about what you want to apply. So we, we read today Philippians 4, 1 to 9. I would like to reflect on the aspect of God being the God of peace. I observed that God is the only one who can give it. And I observed also that um, it's totally beyond my comprehension. I won't be able to understand the peace that God gives, but he does give it. And it, the truth means then for me, I don't need to worry. So to apply that truth means I need to relax in God's care knowing he will keep me at peace as I trust in him. And I will pray. So would you pray with me as we close? Father God, you have provided a way for us to live, and it is in Jesus, who has shown us a, a better way. Paul's words here remind us to stand firm in Jesus and to rejoice in Jesus. He reminds us to be unified in our common bond of faith in Jesus and above all, not to worry or be anxious. Forgive me for worrying. Forgive me for not trusting you. Forgive my thanklessness, which leads me to worry and anxiety. And together, God, as we fix our minds on who you are, May the truths that we find strengthen our faith, give us peace, and give us the stability in our lives that will make us stand out in our world as your followers. And we would pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.